He was almost as beautiful as an angel and attractive to women. He was slender, sinewy, with two dimples flanking his smile and another gracing his chin. Thick hair, a princely mustache, an accent softer than a song, and above all, the general air of someone to whom love is due as a matter of course. But whosoever had fallen victim to his honeyed glances, only to be chilled by his stony egotism, could vouch for the fact that he was sly, deceitful, quarrelsome, thieving, backstabbing, stingy beyond belief. Number 7328 had been at the front for three months, the last three of the year just ended. Before that, he'd been in a training camp in Joigny. Before that, he'd been in Saint-Pierre prison in Marseille, where ever since July 31, 1914, when everyone had gone crazy, he'd been serving a five-year sentence for what he always referred to as an affair of honor, when in fact it had been an argument between two neighborhood pimps that had ended badly. Ten days before Christmas, Angel had convinced an even greater idiot than himself, a notary's clerk from Anjou, that they should shoot each other in the hand. And so, in a stable several kilometers from a front, the two of them had done it, awkwardly, hesitantly. At the last moment, Angel had snatched his hand away from the mouth of the other man's gun and had closed his eyes. He'd pulled the trigger on his own gun, however. Now he was missing two joints from a ring finger and the tip of a middle finger, but the days of the other poor Claude were over for good, as he'd taken Angel's blast full in the face. Watch out for the wire. The fifth and last of those soldiers with their arms tied behind their backs was a cornflower, the nickname of the military class of 1917, and though he was five months shy of the official conscription age of twenty, He'd already spent more time at the front than the pitiful buffoon staggering along ahead of him, and given his fevered imagination, he was even more tortured by fear than his companion. He was afraid of the war and of death. Before all the butchery began, he hadn't been like that at all. At the front, in the beginning, he'd behaved fearlessly, and then there had been an aerial torpedo, one too many, on a summer morning in front of Bascourt. The explosion hadn't touched him, merely blown him off his feet, but when he'd gotten up again he'd been drenched in another man's blood. He had stood there screaming, weeping and tearing off his clothes. They had brought him in naked. His first name was Jean, although his mother and everyone else back home always called him Manish. In the army he was known simply as Cornflower. The number he wore on the bracelet around his good wrist was 9692. He was born in Cap Breton, within sight of Biarritz. The men in his section thought he was from Brittany. He'd given up trying to set them straight from day one. He wasn't a nuisance, he avoided useless arguments, and he knew how to get along. All anyone asked of him was that he keep his head down and watch out for the wire. But then there was the fear that had taken complete possession of him the presentiment that he would never go home again, and a leave of absence he'd been promised but no longer expected to receive. And there was Mathilde. In November, outside Peronne, after ten days of relentless insults from that damned sergeant and the rain, he'd cracked. One stormy night, when he was on lookout in the trench, this boy, who didn't smoke, had lit an English cigarette and he'd held his right hand up over the parapet, protecting the little red glow with his fingers, 
and he'd waited a long time like that until the crowd across the way, peering through his binoculars, figured out what was expected of him. The jerry had been a good shot because it had taken only one bullet which had torn away half his hand, and then the surgeon had lopped off the rest. At his court-martial, not one of the judges had been willing to sign the petition for reprieve. After the staggering blow of his conviction, something inside Cornflower had quietly broken. As he lay in the darkness of the cattle truck bearing him and fourteen others to their unknown destination, from that moment on, he was unconscious of what he had just lived through, the war, his missing hand. He became delusional. The look in his eyes was docile, trusting, and his fixed smile was the grimace of a demented child. He walked along smiling so strangely, the last of these five soldiers who had to be punished. He had blue eyes and black hair. His cheeks were dirty but almost beardless. And now at last his youth gave him an advantage, for he had an easier time of it than his companions in the flooded trenches. In fact, he felt a sense of well-being at plowing through the mud, with the cold wind in his face. He was coming home from school, along the path through the dunes, between the ocean and the lake. He knew his dog Kiki was coming to meet him in the gleaming sunset. He was hungry. He longed for some bread and honey and a big cup of hot chocolate. Someone somewhere said to watch out for the wire. Mathilde doesn't know if Manish heard this, through all the commotion of his childhood memories, through the crash of the great waves that broke over them as she clung to him at the age of twelve, fifteen. She was sixteen when they first made love and swore to marry as soon as he came back from the war. She was seventeen when they told her he was lost. She cried a great deal, because women take such things hard. But she did not overdo it because women don't give up easily, either. August 1919 One day, Mathilde receives a letter from a nun. A man, dying in a hospital near Dux, wishes to see her. His name is Daniel Esperanza, formerly a sergeant in the Territorial Army. He met Manish in January of 1917, at the front on the Somme. Mathilde spends the greater part of the year, as she did before the war, in Cap Breton, at her parents' vacation home. She is looked after by a middle-aged couple, Sylvain and Benedict, who have known her since she was a child. After breakfast, Sylvain drives Mathilde to the hospital. She sits in the front seat of the car, while what she calls her scooter rides in the back. Hospitals don't appeal much to Sylvain, still less to Mathilde, but this one is almost reassuring, a charming pink-and-white house shaded by pines. Daniel Esperanza is seated on a bench at the end of the garden. He is forty-three years old and looks sixty. He's sweating in his gray and beige striped pajamas. He still has all his wits about him, but no longer pays attention to anything. In civilian life, he'd been an exporter of Bordeaux wines. The mobilization in August 1914 hadn't taken him away from any family, since his mother and father were long gone, and he'd never had any brothers or sisters. And as for women, he was confident of finding some wherever the army went. 
He says all this in a toneless voice made ragged by what is killing him. Not in those same words, of course, for Mathilde is a young lady, but it's easy to get the gist of what he means. He has always been an unlucky man. He glances proudly at Mathilde to add that she shouldn't get the wrong idea. He'd been tall, strong, and even attractive before his illness. He'll show her a photograph. He'd been a good-looking fellow. And then two tears trickle down his cheeks. Without wiping them away, he says, Please forgive me. I wasn't aware of your situation until just recently. Cornflower never mentioned it to me, and yet God knows, he talked about you all the time. Mathilde breathes a small sigh. He adds, You probably understand unhappiness better than anyone. She leans forward. Please tell me, where did you see him? Tell me all about it. What happened to him? He sits there, in silence, weeping softly. Finally, he passes his hand over his face and decides to get on with it. On Saturday, the 6th of January, 1917, when his regiment was paving roads with pebbles near Belleuil-en-Santerre, he had been assigned by the military police at Amiens to conduct five infantrymen condemned to death by a court-martial up to a trench on the front line in the Bouchaven sector. He'd received his orders from his commanding officer, a rather cold and unfeeling man who had seemed surprisingly upset at the time, even remarking to his sergeant, Do what you're told, Esperanza, but nothing more. If you want my opinion, a good half of the high command should be sent off to the nuthouse. Daniel Esperanza, as ordered, chose from his company ten experienced soldiers 